North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. As he secured a commitment for the complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, our president also secured a promise from Chairman Kim to return the remains of all fallen U.S. service members lost. Where are we in the progress? A lot of people will say, hey, they're still fueling and, and creating ICBMs. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. I want to thank Chairman Kim in front of the media for fulfilling a promise that he made to me. There is not a second meeting that is currently uh, locked in. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. CSIS's Victor Cha, Mike Green, and Sumi Terry. In this episode of The Impossible State, we're talking to CSIS's Victor Cha and a special guest in Japan. Matoko Rich is the Tokyo bureau chief for the New York Times, and she joins us by phone to discuss the view from Japan. Matoko, thanks so much for joining us. We know you've been riding out the heat wave in Tokyo, and indeed today, over in North Korea, they're talking about their own heat wave where temperatures have topped 100 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, and they're saying that the high temperature phenomenon is the largest unprecedented natural disaster they've ever had. Well, that's saying something for North Korea, given the famine, but yes, I guess that wasn't uh, an entirely natural disaster. Right. Yeah, that's that's true. Well, I mean, there's been a heat wave in North Korea. I mean, with the heated up diplomacy, there's a heat wave that's also come yeah. to the region. So. Heat on all friends, right. definitely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. What kind of heat are you politically and diplomatically are you feeling on your beat in Japan? Well, I think what's interesting about Japan is that um, I think it's fair to say that the prime minister here, Shinzo Abe, is... Uh, one of the few foreign leaders to have remained kind of steadfast in his uh, loyalty to President Trump. Um, but despite that, uh, when the president decided to switch gears and kind of do an 180-degree uh, turn on North Korea and pursue diplomacy rather than the kind of angry rhetoric of late last year, um, Japan was taken by surprise. They were not even informed before the president um, decided to accept Kim Jong-un's invitation to the meeting that ended up in the summit in Singapore in June. And um, I had heard from some folks nearby that literally the moment when um, the South Koreans were uh, briefing the press corps, uh, as you, I'm sure you all remember, that kind of very dramatic moment when they were out on the White House driveway briefing the press corps that the president had accepted this invitation. Yeah. Uh, president Trump got on the phone with Shinzo Abe to say, oh, by the way, I've done this thing. So uh, I think that it came as a surprise. And then ever since, Japan has sort of been scrambling to kind of stay um, relevant, as it were, in the conversation and diplomatic maneuvering with North Korea and has felt a little bit left out. And I think North Korea has also kind of seized upon that and used a lot of kind of ramped up rhetoric. So at a moment when they were uh, pursuing kind of a charm offensive diplomatically with the United States and virtually every other country, they were continuing to use very brash and aggressive rhetoric towards Japan. Um, which is not entirely surprising, given the history between the two countries. Japan obviously occupied both North and South Korea when they were a unified country. Um, there's still a lot of resentment about that in both um, sides of the peninsula. So Japan's kind of an easy punching bag in that way, if, if you're just talking about rhetoric. But I think that Japan has been anxious 
about being left out about the conversation about how to handle North Korea, and particularly since Japan was the most steadfast ally to the United States during the period when it was pursuing this kind of maximum pressure policy and talking a lot about sanctions and aggression, Japan was never sort of publicly was agreeing, you know, lockstep with the Trump administration. So I think they were really caught off guard. And so since then, they've been trying to figure out how to remain uh, on on their face as if they're still uh, 100% allies. Shinzo Abe is Donald Trump's best friend. Um, and yet figure out how to kind of navigate the delicacy of the U.S. having changed its policy. And uh, I've noticed in the last few days that uh, the Japanese leaders have been out and about talking. For example, the foreign minister and the defense minister had meetings with the foreign and defense minister counterparts in Russia, mentioning that they still wanted to impose sanctions. There was also discussion today at a meeting with countries from Southeast Asia where they encouraged the countries to continue to impose sanctions. So I think Japan is particularly worried that there will be a relaxation of the sanctions regime on North Korea before any concrete action is taken. What occurred to me is, you know, Shinzo Abe might want to take his golf clubs back that he gave President Trump. I mean, not a very good friend. <laughs> I was writing about this early uh, earlier this year. It's sort of like, you know, poor Shinzo Abe is a little bit like, you know, he thought he was in this great seat. He'd managed to become the president's best buddy for a year. And, and for a while there, it seemed like the president of South Korea, Moon Jae-in, was sort of on the outside looking in. And then all of a sudden it became, you know, switched around. The points of the triangle switched around. And and Moon Jae-in and the president were on the same page. And Shinzo Abe was kind of outside looking in. He was a little bit like, you know, the, the guy trying to get in with the popular crowd in high school. Um, but... In public, the Japanese government officials will never, ever criticize the U.S. government. They, they you know, might gently suggest that they still believe in maximum pressure. They kind of stick to the party line that they have stuck to all along. But they have not criticized the administration, in fact, have praised the summit and talked about it as a great uh, meeting between the president and Kim Jong-un. Yeah, so if it wasn't real politics, it would be a high school musical. Sure. I mean, this back and forth. I mean, yes, indeed. I, you know, <laughs> I think Matoko is absolutely right. I mean, I, just picking up on one of the points she made about this um uh, Prime Minister Abe's feeling of being left out, you know, I mean, I think this this centers on like a few things, right? The first of these is this, uh, you know, this week we saw the United States receive uh, POW MI remains from North Korea. Uh, the North and the South are talking about different forms of reconciliation. And for, uh, the, for Japan, in particular for Prime Minister Abe, this one issue of the unresolved uh, abductions, these... Um, uh, these Japanese citizens who were abducted and kidnapped in the 1970s, um, that issue has not been resolved. And it's particularly important for Prime Minister Abe because one could argue part of the, his career, his rise to power was, was on this issue. So there's the abductions. The other is the delinking on the missile issue. I mean, we're very concerned about the long-range ballistic missile threat from North Korea as demonstrated by the Hwasong-15 missile that they flight tested last year. And um, for Japan, while those long-range missiles are a concern, the you know 300 or so deployed short and medium-range ballistic missiles are an, they're an extant threat 
to J- Japan. And so the que- there's a question Absolutely. there, right? I think on that point, I think one of Japan's big fears is that the U.S. might do some kind of deal where they agree with North Korea that, okay, if you give up your ICBM program, give up a number, a certain number of nuclear warheads, we'll call it a day, which would, could potentially still leave North Korea with all the means to threaten Japan. And I think that's a huge worry. And you've seen in uh, recent months that they have pursued uh, uh, increased missile defense. They're buying these Aegis Shore systems from Lockheed Martin in the United States. So they really are acting as if they still consider North Korea to be a real threat. Right. And so a bad deal would be a nightmare for Japan, like a bad nuclear deal would be a nightmare. And then on top of a bad nuclear deal being a nightmare would be if uh, Trump decided to agree to some sort of peace declaration ending the Korean War when the threat clearly hasn't dissipated for Japan and North Korean attitudes towards Japan obviously still remain um, uh, still remain quite belligerent. And, you know, I think, and maybe, Matoka, you were probably there, but when Prime Minister Abe met with uh, President Trump in the run-up to the Singapore summit, um, you know, I think he kept making all these points. And I remember in one particular right. time in the uh, the first press spray before they were actually going into their meetings, you know, th- you know th- that first press spray is just an atmospheric thing. I'm going to go talk to my good buddy. We're good friends. We're good allies. And they go in. And that's what the president said. Um, and then uh, Prime Minister Abe gave like a, I don't know, it must have been like a 10-minute prepared set of remarks. And I think he mentioned the word um, uh, sanctions like about seven times in that thing, uh, which speaks to uh, Matoko's right. point. The other thing the Japanese want to do is they want to keep pressing on the sanctions, and they're worried that this diplomacy is going to eventually lead, if it has not already led, to the erosion of the sanctions that are really biting on North Korea. Well, you know, I wondered what the Japanese reaction would be along these lines to President Trump's tweet last night where he said he he thanked Chairman Kim Jong-un for keeping his word. Um, He said, thank you for your nice letter. I look forward to seeing you soon, which implies there's going to be a second meeting soon. So not only might Japan be on the outside looking in, the Trump administration and President Trump himself seems to be buddying up with Kim Jong-un. I'm sorry to say we've gotten used to this now. I mean, President Trump basically trying to make policy through tweets that then the rest of the government has to catch up to. Now they have to figure out, is there going to be a second meeting? Is it going to happen in New York on the sidelines of UNGA? You know, where, where is, you know, where, how are we supposed to plan this? I mean, it's just... Is he going to catch the Excella down from the yeah. UNGA to the White House? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, and then it drives, I'm sure it drives people like Prime Minister Abe absolutely nuts when he sees things like this. This was a late night tweet well, last absolutely. night. absolutely. Well, I am sure there are people in the, in the Japanese government who are, uh, who've got the tweets on their phone alarms going, off all night and all morning. Um, <laughs> I bet they did. I mean, <laughs> including all of us in the media. Um, I, I would say that when I talk to uh, folks in the Japanese government, um, you know, behind the scenes as well as longtime North Korea watchers here, there is this sort of uh, line or narrative here that they emphasize very strongly that I think is also shared by many in the U.S. policy community, which is here we go again, that we've been here before. Uh, we have tried to negotiate all of these issues with North Korea before, and they've gone back on their word. And so there's a lot of this sort of sense in Japan that they can't really take seriously what is being said by the North Koreans because they've been here before. They've negotiated not only, you know, not directly with the current 
um, Mr. Kim, obviously, because the, uh, they, the last time that a Japanese prime minister went to North Korea with his father, who was uh, in charge. But they have met with many of the folks who are sitting on the uh, other side of the table in these diplomatic um, negotiations, like uh, Kim Yong-chol and the woman who used to be the... No, uh, Chesun-hee. Um, yeah, Chesun-hee. Yeah, they're they're very familiar with both of them. They've negotiated with them. They met with them during the security talks. So they they sort of see this as all you know. We don't see this as anything new or any progress here. And I think there's a little bit of frustration that that the uh, American administration doesn't currently share their sense of history. I found that in uh, the last couple of weeks meeting with Japanese folks that there is, um, you know, of all the parties that are involved in this, of the six parties, let's say, you know, the two Koreas, the United States, Japan, Russia, and China, of that whole group, um, the Japanese are by far the ones that are showing the most, maybe not publicly, as Motoko said, but certainly privately, the most impatience about where this diplomacy is going, you know, is it going anywhere? If the South Koreans look at the five things that the North Koreans have done, you know, in terms of no more testing, decommissioning the nuclear site, decommissioning the satellite launch site, returning the remains, returning the hostages, they look, if the South Koreans look at those five things and say, those are confidence building measures before the big core negotiation on denuclearization, the Japanese look at those five measures and say it's a delaying tactic. It's an effort to distract, delay, you know, to give the president some um, some things he can talk about in terms of success of his diplomacy. But it's really aimed at distracting from the core issue, which is timeline, declaration, IAEA back into the country, all these sorts of things. Um, so I think there, you know, there there is. I sense that there's. Um, I, I mean, I, I agree. It's frustration, but it, it's also sort of a lot of questions about, you know, are, you know is this really going to go anywhere? Shouldn't we start? Shouldn't I think if they had their choice, they would like to see a bottom-up reassessment by the United States at this point of where we are, you know, two months after the Singapore summit in terms of the core issue of denuclearization. Well, not to mention also that U.S. intelligence officials said this week that North Korea has yet to stop production of ballistic missiles. And, you know, on top of all that, less than two months ago, Donald Trump tweeted that there is no longer a, a nuclear threat from North Korea. I don't think the Japanese agree with that premise. <laughs> I would think not. They would, politely, they would politely disagree, right? Yeah. They would politely disagree yes, with that. Indeed, very politely disagree, just so you might not even notice. But but I, I completely agree with Victor that they um, would like to see more of a bottom-up assessment. They want to see a little more of the kind of brass tacks and the tech, get down into to the weeds a bit about well, how exactly is this going to work. Um, I think when I talk to people here in the policy community, they would say, we are not convinced that North Korea will ever give up its nuclear weapons. We don't see that path right now. And also, as Victor rightly points out, though, here in Japan, the issue of the abductees is, is, is incredibly important politically to the Abe administration, but also emotionally to the Japanese public. It's a very front and center issue. Um, the, the families of the abductees 
abductees are regularly in the news media, and when the government leaks that it's interested or that it's having back-channel talks with uh, North Korean officials, it's usually in relation to this abductee issue. And I think some analysts think that the Japanese government has put itself into a little bit of a bind, because until that issue is resolved, it makes it very difficult for the government to talk about anything else, because they stake so much political um, capital on somehow resolving uh, the abductee issue. That's issue. That's sort of the vocabulary they use. They use the word resolve um, rather than return or what have you. So so there's sort of a question about what that would mean, but it would have to be some kind of one-on-one meeting between Japanese leadership and North Korean leadership for that particular issue to be resolved. Although the president did say that he mentioned it in his conversa- private conversation with Kim Jong-un, um, you know, we don't think that anybody else cares enough about the issue or the Japanese government doesn't think that anyone else believes that anyone else cares enough about the issue to actually do anything about it. So it will have to be the Japanese government that goes and does something about it. Um, the one other interesting thing that I keep hearing, and I don't know, I'm curious, Victor, if you also hear this when you talk to the folks in Japan, is this kind of sense that they will have some leverage down the line because um, they have the economic um, backing or uh, they they could help North Korea develop economically. If, in fact, Kim Jong-un is sincere about wanting to pursue economic development now um, in tandem with now that he feels more confident about the nuclear um, development, then Japan says, you know, they're going to have to turn to us because they're going to need some of our money. And in fact, um, Japan did pay reparations to South Korea um, for its occupation. And those uh, analysts often say, look, we still have a sort of pool of money that we could use as reparations to North Korea. If they meet some of our criteria, I resolve the abductee issue, but also make concrete steps toward nuclearization, we might be willing to normalize uh, diplomatic relations, but also help out economically. And so I think there's sort of this hope almost that that leverage, that, that will give them some kind of leverage in future negotiations. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, the formula that they that had been talked about, at least by experts back when uh, Prime Minister Koizumi did the Pyongyang Declaration, was that if there were ever normalization between these two countries, that at least the starting template would be that Japan would provide what was the equivalent of the 1965 normalization settlement with South Korea to North Korea, you know, in current dollars. That's a lot of money. I mean, it was a lot of money then. It would be a lot of money now. Whether that would actually happen, nobody knows. But I think Matoko's right. I mean, this is something that the Japanese have sort of in their back pocket. Um, And in every denuclearization deal we've done with North Korea, you know, Japan has been an integral part. They were an integral part of Quito. They were one of the three founding members of the Korean Energy Development Organization, which implemented the 94 Agreement. And in the six party talks, they were part, uh, they were one of the countries that were supposed to be part of the energy assistance packages that were to go to North Korea while they kept these facilities frozen and eventually dismantled. I want to offer one other thing that I've heard, which I thought was actually quite interesting. I don't know whether I believe it. I don't know, Matoka, whether you would believe this, but some have said a couple of things on the abductees. The first is that Prime Minister Abe has been very clear with President Trump about how important this issue is, but almost 
to the almost to the detriment of overall Japanese interest in this because some are concerned that's the only thing that president registered with President Trump so that when he goes in he thinks I got got to keep Japanese equities in mind abductees and he just talks he just mentions the abductees he doesn't mention short range ballistic missiles he doesn't mention some of some of the other things the other thing I've heard Mm. is that there's some in Japan who are actually very comfortable with where we are on the abductions issue, contrary to what everybody thinks, because never before have they had both the South Korean president and the U.S. president directly say to the North Korean leader, you need to resolve this issue with Japan. And so, you know, the optimists argue that while this has not been resolved, we are at a better starting point on reopening this issue than we ever have been in the past in terms of the negotiations. So I don't know, Matoka, I don't know how you feel about that, but I, that was something that I heard that was a little bit different. Well, I would say I would absolutely agree with the sort of opening part of your remarks there, which is that um, they are happy that both the South Korean president and the U.S. president mentioned the abductees. I mean, they sort of said that's all we want from both the inter-Korean summit and the uh, the Singapore summit for, for our part is that's what we want sort of in terms of the Japanese agenda, that's what we want to be on the table. And I think that they would say, you know, obviously we support the notion that we want total, you know, complete uh, CVID denuclearization, um, but sort of the single issue that's most important to Japan is the abductee. So I think they were absolutely um, satisfied that the the issue was at least raised in both um, contexts. That being said, uh, like you, Victor, I sort of wonder if, it's actually true that they feel like they're in a better position than they've ever been. I mean, I think at the at the time that then Prime Minister Koizumi went to Pyongyang, I think that's when people really were quite hopeful. And in fact, five abductees did come home mm, mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. So um, I would be surprised if people genuinely thought that things they, that, that they were at a better state of negotiation now, because other than mentioning it, not much has been done about it. Uh, the other thing that I would say on the CVID issue is that, and, and I, I think this is, is true, I mean, there's so much diplomacy happening in the stratosphere right now um, among the leaders through tweets and other things. And um, the, the focus on verification, like nobody wants a bad deal, right? And so the best way to avert a bad deal is to really focus on verification standards. It's one of the reasons why we at CSIS did, a, did that conference last, last week about verification. And if there's one party that has been very stalwart behind the scenes on the verification issue, it has been Japan. That they, uh, in fact, they have better conversations with U.S. counterparts on verification than the South Koreans do with the U.S. counterparts on verification. Why is that? Well, I think it's in part because Japan is coming in with a very high standard, very high bar, and most people in the arms control and counterproliferation uh, directorates at state and the NSC would agree, would entirely agree with that standard. Whereas from, I think, a South Korean perspective, it's more political. It's not sort of an absolute standard. It's more political. It's more, this is a negotiation. Um, We need to demonstrate flexibility, these sorts of things. So I think there's a little bit of um, dissonance there when you look at it trilaterally. But uh, on Japan, I, I think that they feel like they have had a good conversation with the United States on verification standards. 
But then again, that's a conversation that's taking place at the expert level. But this actual, what's happening in this in this diplomacy and negotiation is taking place at in the stratosphere. And the State Department's still predicting, despite reports of new missiles, they're still predicting that North Korea is headed towards denuclearization. Where does that come from? You know, I think that they're doing their best to stay in line with the president. I think you know, the president has been very positive about this, at least publicly, and everything that he said and everything that he's tweeted. And they're probably um, doing their best to stay in line with what their secretary's objective is. And, uh, you know, I think often, <laughs> and I remember this, often when there are difficulties in the negotiations, uh, the standard public response is to say, is basically to reaffirm what our objective is, right, which is denuclearization. So people can say, you know, there's imagery showing they're refurbishing sites, they're, you know, they're creating fissile material, they're building new missiles, and then the standard sort of talking part response is, we remain committed to denuclearization. We have confidence that our objectives in denuclearization will remain the standard. You know? Even though they're still building Even missiles, we're still building, committed. We're to, committed to. Yeah. We know we are confident about what our objectives are. Right. Right. And yeah. the Japan, Japanese government is very uh, uh, would react very similarly. That right, reiterating right. the goals rather than talking about the possible shortfalls in the implementation is the way to kind of stay on message. Montogo, there's probably only one other or one other country where this issue is um, as carefully covered by the media and watched by everybody, and that's obviously South Korea. But in Japan, you could argue it's even more uh, covered in Japan than it is anywhere else. I mean, but at the general public level, do you feel that this has really captured the imagination or the attention of the general public like it has in South Korea? Uh, no, I don't think it would have... I would say that it's captured its imagination like it has in South Korea, where there's a much more kind of you know, our country potential reunification kind of romanticization, it seems, that uh -huh. is part of the um, attention. Uh, that being said, I mean, there were missiles flying over Hokkaido last year, so there was a sort of palpable sense of anxiety. I wouldn't say it was outright fear yet, but there was definitely a palpable sense of anxiety here last year. So to the extent that that has retreated, I think there's a bit of relief about that. And there's certainly interest in what's going to happen. But I don't think... Um, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've been over to Seoul, but, but certainly, um, in, in Tokyo, there's intense interest at the government levels and bureaucracy level. Um, and I think when you watch the news, there's as much going on domestically here now that maybe the eyes have come off a little bit of the foreign policy. But certainly everybody was, you know, 100% interested in the summit. I mean, I think Japan sent one of the largest media contingents to the summit in Singapore. So there, certainly anytime anything happens at that stratospheric level, they pay attention. The media pays attention here. One thing we haven't talked about yet is China. Hmm. How does China figure into all this? Well, I think for Japan, one of the things is that there is starting to be a sense that all the attention being paid to North Korea in the past year has meant that the, that, that the Chinese have quietly been um, expanding their reach and their influence in the region, and there is an increasing amount of concern about that. Um, so I think there's much more talk about protecting, for example, the contested islands, the Senkakus, um, co coordinating with the United States and in India on the, you know, there's a lot of talk about this so-called Indo-Pacific strategy to make sure that China doesn't take over the South China Sea. Um, and that uh, I was talking to someone the other day about how in, in some ways, 
uh, North Korea is giving Japan an opportunity kind of militarily to build up its missile defenses, and they can say it's about North Korea, but it's sort of also about China. So, for example, buying these Aegis Ashore, they're saying that they're buying them because they want to protect against potential short- or medium-range missiles that could come over from North Korea. But I think what's not said is that it also could provide protection from any aggression that they might fear coming from China. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, the North Korea issue certainly has distracted everybody from the broader efforts by China, the sort of creeping hegemony that China has been implementing quite effectively with the island building campaign. Um, and then also the constant harassment in the East China Sea, right, uh, with regard to Japan and the Senkaku Daiutai Islands. Um, it, you know, on the one hand, it has taken a lot of, it, uh, of focus, media focus, a lot of expert focus off the issue. Uh, 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 but at the same time, it has provided Prime Minister Abe uh, with uh, the justification for really pushing forward with um, an agenda on the military side that is, you know, I think meant in the longer term to, to more normalize Japan uh, as a military power. Now, I don't know, Motoko, on constitutional constraints and things, I, I don't know what the kind of, what support there is now for constitutional revision. I mean, I sense that it was something that was on the agenda of Abe when he started. I don't know whether it's still a realistic possibility, even as they are uncertain of where the diplomacy is going. Uh, but yes, I mean, right. short of that, Prime Minister Abe has been able to do a lot on the defense side. Right. I mean, I think that he's gone through enough sort of domestic scandal and, and, and it seems that he's put it behind him and he actually is facing a leadership election next month for mm. leadership of the LDP. And if he wins that, it basically means he will have three more years in office, which would make him the longest um, serving prime minister in history, uh, Japan's history, which is certainly a record that he wants to set. Um, in terms of constitutional reform, I think he will still try to push some form of it, but I don't think it will be um, he, I don't think he will manage to completely overturn the pacifist clause in the Constitution, which is what he set out to do. But I think he might well figure out a way to modify it. And meanwhile, having rammed through um, security laws in 2015 that uh, allow the country to do a lot more militarily to kind of join in uh, protection of the co country and the region and protection of its allies, uh, I think they are building up their military. I mean, I think it's it's really hard to look at Japan from a practical level and say, this is a completely pacifist country. I mean, they have a fairly large standing army and lots of equipment. And like I said, they're buying Aegis Ashore and they want to buy more fighter jets. And uh, so I think there is this sense of sort of pushing, nudging steadily forward toward, um, as Prime Minister Abe has described it, making Japan a more quote-unquote normal country. But yes, there is this definite effort um, to militarize the country. Not not because, and you know, I should happen to add that those that would say that Japan is doing this because they suddenly have these, uh, you know, reigniting imperialist ambitions. I don't think that's true at all. But they definitely want the, the Abe administration definitely wants to, to to have more military power for the country. So, what do you think the chances are in this election? I mean, does he have a pretty good chance? Yeah, no, it's interesting. If you'd asked me three months ago, I would say, wow, it looked like he, you know, his chances are very perilous and that the, the, the domestic scandals, there were a couple of influence peddling scandals that were really dogging him for over a year. Um, and it seemed like they were about to really um, 
threatened to topple him. But he seems to kind of, you know, over the summer, things have calmed down and, you know, tension shifted to North Korea for a while and, and other issues. And then there's been the um, there were these devastating floods in the west of Japan and the heat wave. And he's trying to show that he's being, a you know, a true leader and handling these issues. And it doesn't appear that there's any viable opposition, which is the most important reason why it appears that he is probably going to win this leadership election. Um, there's always a chance that, you know, politics, like you say, we could be a long time in politics, even in Japan. So things could change, but the pundits are now saying they think it's very likely that he'll be reelected. It's an amazing story. I mean, I remember I was in government in 2006 when he was last prime minister, and it was about, the, I mean, it was about the most difficult prime minister's short-term in office that I've you know, ever seen. Like, you remember they had the big um, the postal right. savings scandal, and then he was ill, and there were just all these things. And I remember when he resigned back then, a lot of people thought he was done, just completely done. It's just, it's just an amazing comeback, just astounding. And a lot of it has to do with the lack of opposition. I mean, on the one hand, he's been very, he's an you know, incredibly shrewd politician, but on the other hand, there just hasn't been anyone, not only from opposing parties, but from within his own party to um, credibly challenge him. And some of that may be due to the fact that he and his allies in the party have successfully managed to undermine any potential opposition. But still, um, uh, a lot of times when there are polls taken, it's not as if people are overwhelmingly supportive of Abe. It's more that they can't think of anybody else they want to do the job. So it sounds like there's going to be a lot more golfing trips between <laughs> Prime Minister Abe and President Trump to come. Yes. You know, nobody wants to, to say for sure. I mean, if I talk to anybody in the government right now, they very, you know, hopefully point out that there is an election coming up in September and there are no guarantees. But I, I, it feels like there may be some people already counting their chickens. Yeah, I hear golf in the fall in Florida is still very nice. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we could be seeing a lot more. It's the year-round sport, right. I think. Right. <laughs> If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.